Right, welcome everyone to Fast Lift Podcast, episode 57. Um, I'm super stoked today to have uh, Dr. James Steele uh, with me. So uh, welcome, James. Thanks for coming on. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Um, quick background on James. Uh, he's a, uh, a doctor of hyper, quite literally a doctor of hypertrophy, which is amazing. It sounds like a superpower, frankly. <laughs> and um, he's based out of Southampton. Uh, done a number of research articles to pres- at present. Um, as a rough, broad perspective, I think I'm very much a big fan of high-intensity training, um, working hard in the gym, which I thought was uh, pretty cool coming from England, the home of uh, Yates and Jordan Peters and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to delve into a few questions here. So uh, James, I'm um, going to ask you to do something here, which is a new thing that I picked up from another podcast. Um, can you summarize what you do in 10 seconds or less? <laughs> Oh, wow. God. No, probably not. <laughs> and you've only got 20 seconds to think. <laughs> so. Wow. Okay, right. Um, I would say very broadly, my research, um, at least now, is um, very interdisciplinary and focuses on um, human performance and adaptation to performance and behavior um, across across the spectrum from, you know, high-end performance all the way through to kind of clinical conditions and across the lifespan. It, it's very, very broad, my research is nowadays. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Brilliant. That, that wasn't 10 seconds. <laughs> no, <not at> <laughs> but I like it anyway. So I'm going to uh, start off with a few quick-fire questions to get to, to get to know you. Firstly, Batman or Superman? <laughs> Batman. Excellent. Tea I was going to say Goku. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Okay iPhone or Samsung? Samsung. Nice. Uh, invisibility or super strength? Say that one again. Invisibility or super strength? Oh, super strength. Nice. And finally, what's your biggest gym pet peeve? People who don't put their weights away. Yeah, gotta hit Definitely. That. Definitely. I make a big deal. I make a big scene out of it by putting people's <laughs> weights away for them. And just, I, I'm, I'm just generally obnoxious when I see people not doing it. Nice. nice. I like it. <laughs> We'd get on well. <laughs> yeah. Which is why, to be fair, I tend to just train at home now. <laughs> yeah. Is it because you've been banned from all the local gyms? There's <laughs> a picture of you. Know, not this guy. <laughs> so I leave something out. My wife's like, put it away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Awesome. So we've, uh, we've got quite a few questions coming in. We'll start with this one. Um, detraining deload periods to potentiate more gains. Now, in the research to do with um, strength and uh, other sporting prowess, that is a fairly clear relationship there. But what about for muscle growth, for gains? Um, is there a case to be made? Yeah, so th- this is... Um... In all honesty, it's not something that I've seen a lot of uh, research on in the last sort of you know, five, six years or so. Or so, so. Um, that's not to say there might have been, but at least back in um, sort of 2013, when we um, conducted a review of um, resistance training's effects on muscle hypertrophy and how the manipulation of different variables impacted that, we did look to review um, the impact of kind of detraining or deload periods on um, hypertrophy as an outcome. And uh, there were some interesting studies that had come uh, out of Japan, which had looked at, um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head here, so so I'm not gonna get the details exactly right. But there were a couple of studies that looked at essentially introducing kind of these detraining periods of either between four to six weeks, I think they were in the studies. Um, 
And uh, what they tended to find was that even in designs where the amount of training done over, for example, a 12-week um, period um, differed because in one condition they introduced, you know, say like a four-week detraining period or, or complete deload period. Um, although during that period there was a, you know, a, a attenuation of, of the gains that were originally produced in the first training uh, period, they seem to be picked back up by the end of the uh, the intervention as a whole. Um, so what the results tend to look like was um, with the um, the continuous training, it kind of you know continually increased over time across the intervention. Whereas with the detraining period, there was kind of like an increase, a slight decrease. But then by the end of the training intervention, they're caught back up with the um, with the group that can train continuously. So. From from what I've seen in the literature, there's not necessarily evidence that um, taking those breaks kind of uh, results in any greater gains. Um, but the good news is that taking those breaks means that although you might initially lose something if they're extended, you can easily gain them back um, to the levels that you were at previously. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think, uh, you know, that that research particularly in periods like now where people have had to potentially have extended layoffs and um, although having said that we've just finished up a quite big um survey-based study of um, how lockdowns affected people's resistance training behaviors um and uh, interestingly people have been pretty people who were previously resistance training before lockdown started um the vast majority maintained their training um, so we had about, um, off the top of my head, it was about 82% of um, just over 5,000 respondents um, were still training during nice. lockdown. Um, obviously, most people were training at home. Um, and there was a shift towards most people training with uh, free weights and um, using bodyweight exercises and obviously not using things like machines. Um, but most people maintain the same sort of sets, reps, uh, frequencies, etc. Um, so, you know, it seemed pretty robust. Um, but yeah, like even, you know, short layoff periods don't have a huge impact in the grand scheme of things if you're thinking about the long term plan. Okay, that's, in that's really interesting. I think with, uh, with a week off every now and again, it's good to know that we're not losing anything in the grand scheme of things. But then that week off could also have some benefits. So just thinking in terms of uh, ligament and joint health and muscle strains, just giving them a chance to sort of recuperate. That's sort of the model that I use with, with my clients and just giving them a bit of a break prior to having another run up. Um, so in, in practical terms, do you think that's possibly a good use? That yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, th this is one of the things that you often don't see in... Um, in the research that we typically do in sports science, you know, it's a young science. It's, um, I spoke about this on another podcast. We tend to do what's called um, efficacy research. So we'll take like a variable, we'll tightly control an intervention, you know, in a lab or gym based setting. And we try and remove all of the kind of noise and nuance and confounding factors that are, um, you know, present in real life. And uh, we often don't consider all of the other outcomes that are important to people um so you know like i've just got back off of annual leave and i took a week off um training while we were out camping and uh, you know i felt really good coming back into training this week um wasn't any any weaker you know everything all performance was the same but i felt fresh and that you know that's good i felt good i felt i felt motivated to get back into it as well so sometimes taking that break is um although physiologically maybe it doesn't have such a big impact um, practically, I think it, it can be really important to, to program those in. So, yeah. It seems to be a sort of a, 
a model which is used when you have overreaching periods. So is there, do you think there's possibly a, a future look at this new type, of, another type of research which might look at actual overtraining periods, follow them by deloads and how that might potentiate gains better or the same? Do you think it's application there or has there been anything? I mean, there's, it, it, that's not an area that, of literature that I'm hugely familiar with. So I know there is some stuff that has looked out, uh, looked at kind of what they call functional overreaching. Mm. Um, you know, the, these periods of building up the, uh, the training dose such that you're kind of bordering on, yeah. uh, you know, overtraining, um, but then ease back off to take those deload periods. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm not hugely familiar with it, but I'm I'm somewhat skeptical as to you know the necessity of it in terms of you know strength hypertrophy those types of outcomes over the long term. Um, but you know, there are I think there are these kind of like you know psychosocial benefits to um, varying training in in ways that you know works for you. Um, I uh, years back I, I I used to do that quite a lot um because I was I was always keen to constantly like push what I was trying to achieve in the gym so I'd be kind of like ramping up volume ramping up load ramping up everything in concert um and really sort of like pushing myself to breaking put point um and then would be forced to back back off and at the time you know I was young and I enjoyed that um I'm not necessarily convinced it was producing any better results than I would have got from just something a bit more, you know, consistent and, uh, um, you know, better managed in terms of um, fatigue over time. But um, yeah, it, it, it's in terms of if you're employing that type of training approach, you are almost to an extent forced into doing it because otherwise you do border on the potential for overtraining, which obviously can be a big deal. I think that's being batted back and forth now between Eric Helms and uh, Mike Isretel. Uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, there, there's mm. papers back and forth where Eric is much more on the lines of what you're saying is having a consistent, yet maybe increasing via your career um, level of volume, whereas Mike is much more of the paradigm of burst, short bursts of increased volume followed by deloads and waving the volume far more acutely. Um, interesting to see what the outcome is. I think they're just batting back and forth research papers on that right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think one thing is, um, like, I, I've become a bit sort of, you know, grumpy and skeptical uh, <laughs> of lots of stuff over time. And um, because my research has broadened quite considerably, um, where I've, I started off very much focusing on just resistance training, you know, I, I was interested in it from the same perspective as everyone else. I was, a, I was a bro and I wanted to lift heavy and, you know, I was interested in how to get bigger. Um, but as my interests have expanded, I've been exposed to more um, methodological literature um, in other domains where they're doing things that um, would be really useful for us to be doing in sports science. So, like I've, I've got this kind of idea that most most studies for example of hypertrophy you know they'll measure say ultrasound thickness and you know you might get a study that looks at two different training interventions and um you know one intervention produces three mil greater growth than um you know another intervention um I mean, that sounds sexy because you've used an ultrasound or let's say you've used an MRI or whatever. Um, but no one ever actually looks at the outcome of whether people look bigger or whether like, you know, aesthetically there are actually noticeable changes. You know, in, in, in psychology, they, um, because of the things they measure, um, they're not always, always um, you know, like, like we're, we're lucky. You measure one RM, like everyone understands like 100 kilos in, you know, bench press, eh, that's pretty respectable. You know, if someone's deadlifting more than 200 kilos, you know, it, people have an understanding of like what's good and what's 
bad and what's a good increase in things. But psychology is a field, you know, they're measuring things on scales and, and you know, self-report measures and things like that. And so for years, they've used these standardized effect sizes. Um, and back when uh, Jacob Cohen was, um, you know, proposing these, these standardized effect size measures for looking at outcomes, he kind of um, used these thresholds to say, well, if you see and standardized effect size that's this big, then that's the threshold for a psychological effect that would be noticeable to the naked eye sort of thing. Um, and I think like we could take that logic and say like, well, actually how big an increase in muscle size measured with our tools do we need to see before we actually go like, oh, wow, like that intervention actually really is noticeably better than the other intervention. Um, and in fact, what I've got, we've got a new, myself and James Fisher have got a new PhD student um, who's just started with us, a, a guy called Milo Wolf, um, who actually works with uh, Mike Isretel, um and Renaissance Periodization. And uh, in, he's going to be um, looking to collect some data to try and potentially, you know, provide some useful um, information for researchers and, and practitioners, you know, to help interpret studies to say like, well, how big a change in ultrasound thick muscle thickness do you need to see before people start noticing it and um, because he wants to be able to interpret his studies in a way that is meaningful to um you know practitioners and trainees and trainers i, I think that's a great direction i mean i remember the, looking at research when i first started training the, the only thing that was out there was essentially stuff on sports and so performances in like strength increases and, and uh, power increases so we had to sort of extrapolate that out to hypertrophy which didn't really work very well and now we're starting to get some good stuff coming through but i can only imagine it'll get better so yeah fantastic love it um if we go on to the, the next one um i wanted to talk a bit about unilateral work for muscle gains is there any application to this i do quite a lot of it i like it i find that particularly for leg work not so much for upper body stuff but for leg work it seems to be quite fruitful um what are your thoughts on that so um so yeah when you sent that question question through my initial thought was um there is again there's you know there's not any evidence that it's any better than just training bilaterally but in terms of practical application there's some um good evidence that um supports its use particularly for example if you have um, any kind of unilateral injury um so although, um, so you might be familiar with uh, like cross education effects when it comes to strength gains. So there is some evidence that because of the, um, you know, the, the central nervous system's involvement in um, muscle recruitment and, and um, force output, the, um, the training of one limb can produce a, a small transfer um, that results in increase in a, in a limb that's not trained. Mm -hmm. um, what we don't see though is any impact um, in muscle size um, okay. in the untrained limb. However, um, there is some interesting data that suggests that um, during immobilization, um, training the opposite limb does help to attenuate the muscle loss that would occur during immobilization. Um, so, you know, that could potentially be pr practically extrapolated to um, to say, well, if you've got, you know, a, a, an arm or a leg injury or something that is preventing you from performing bilateral work, you should still train the other limb because it might actually help spare um, any muscle loss that you might experience through um, not training the other limb during that period. I think that's good to know. I mean, I've got a, a friend of mine, an acquaintance from my hometown who's just tore his pec uh, pretty badly oh, wow. as well. Yeah, yeah, rough stuff. Young, young guy as well, uh, tore his pec off. And um, he, his doctor basically told him just to 
to rest up for a while. So uh, I got to speak to him and he's doing a little bit of resistance training now on his throne, as long as his, his doctor approves. But I, I, that's what I thought. I thought it was a good idea. It's, it's, it's interesting to know, though, about the strength increases on either side. Um, however, not the hypertrophy increases. That would, I guess that would make quite a lot of sense because it's quite hard to even out muscle imbalances. Um, strength imbalances, like my left arm is just as strong as my right arm, but I'm pretty sure it's smaller. I mean, I'm sure I'm the only one that can see that. <laughs> You know, it's the bodybuilding mentality, um, but uh, it's hard. To, so, I guess, what would the solution be for that? I mean, that's a completely different question, but I guess just more work. In terms of um, being able to produce muscle size gains in an untrained limb. Yeah, or... I mean, we're moving on to sort of a different question here, but um, uh, just purely from a selfish standpoint, would that be because we, the strength increase, the strength is going to be the same if we're on on either side. So, what could we do to increase the size of that limb? So, so I mean, because we don't get that, um, you know, cross effect in terms of muscle growth, muscle growth is, is you know, a largely kind of localized phenomenon. Um, and so, you know, this, this does speak to, particularly from a bodybuilding perspective, because of the importance of, you know, aesthetics, um, isolation and specialization work, you know, potentially does become quite important um, in that, you know, application. Um, of course, you know, I've been involved in uh, work that's looked at um, comparing, for example, single and multi-joint exercises. And um, although obviously some of that is in question now because of the, uh, um, the recent um, uh, white paper that's been published about some issues around uh, work that I've collaborated on with um, Matthias Barbello and, and colleagues in Brazil. But some of the earlier work and also some of the work that we've done in our own lab has suggested that um, you can still get, for example, bicep, uh, you know, um, improvements in a multi-joint exercise, similar to what you might get in a, um, you know, a single joint exercise. But in, when it comes to competitive bodybuilders and those who are really looking for that, that increase, there's also no downside to doing it, at least in those studies. And if there is any potential benefit, then why not, you know, include those specializations and focus, you know, um, and focus on those things. And again, you know, you almost come back to what we were talking about to begin with, which is, yeah, I mean, you mentioned it, it, it the bodybuilder mentality. I, I, I also have this theory that, um, I, you know, over time, I feel like I'm becoming more and more like a sociologist. But um, yeah. I, 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 I have a sneaking suspicion that most of what is done in um, a lot of different, uh, you know, sports, particularly at the elite level, um, is not necessarily causing that elite performance, but um, is a, an effect of uh, being an elite athlete. So, you know, athletes train the way they do because they think it works. Um, whether it actually works or not is another question. But, you know, I, um, one of my uh, other PhD students who does a lot of work with powerlifters, um, he also he uses this phrase, uh, placeboing it. And um, another ex-student of mine, um, he, he often talks about this idea of um, when he's working with athletes, there's a kind of a babysitting element to it. And kind of, it's, it's a little bit like working with children. Like that sounds really disrespectful, but it's true. Um, well, yeah. And I've had that experience as well. Well, you know, sometimes you have to, you make a choice where you go like, well, there's no need for you to train this way, but you think it's going to work. Um, I could give you something more simple, but if you don't think that's going to work, you're just not going to do it. So I'm just going to give, I know it's not going to have any downside. Yeah. So I'm going to employ this with you. Um, you know, and you've got kind of opportunity costs and things like that to think of, you know, if one training intervention takes twice as long as another one. And, uh, you know, it means you can't do something else. And there's always things to consider, but it's, it's all that holistic stuff that you, you've got to play into the individual and their mindset. And 
it, it's interesting, isn't it? When I first got into uh, coaching, I was dead set against that kind of stuff because I thought it was very frivolous. Um, but then as I, as I saw what people are doing, as I, as I got the buy-in with clients, I realized that part of that is actually quite necessary. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to reveal what I do in case my clients are listening because I don't want to spoil the placebo. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think you've got you to get them interested. You've got to get them motivated. And I think you've only got to look at the placebo studies on steroids, for example, which are amazing. You know, mm. Give somebody some fake steroids and their one at max increases. And these were really primed, very, very good powerlifters. So I think that's phenomenal. Um, yeah, love it. Great, great stuff. Um, I wanted to cover this question next. Uh, I, I quite like this because I've, I've had this argument with people in the industry before, and um, I have my own views on it, but I'd love to hear what you think. So current body of evidence on optimum exercise frequency, especially for advanced guys, um, what do we know? Uh, because the common theme at the moment is for anyone who's evidence-based, just to spout out this whole thing about twice a week, twice a week is two or three times a week is, is great. And I'm not sure, so sure the research actually supports that. Uh, from what I've seen, the research seems to support um, it's fairly equivocal in uh, advanced lifters, at least. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so the at least if you look at what are the most um, recent meta-analyses from, I guess, the last sort of two, three years um, for strength and for hypertrophy outcomes, there seems to be... When, when volume is is roughly equated, there seems to be a fairly broad range over which um, you know you, results seem fairly similar. And from memory, um, in the meta, those those are the um, there's been three meta analyses. I think um, there was one from Brad Schoenfeld. Um, there was um, Grant Ralston uh, published one a few years back, which I think was on strength and. Um, Jozo Gergic, uh, which I'm never sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, um, also published one um, maybe a couple of years ago. Um, but if I remember rightly, in one of, I think in the in them they did uh, look at the effects of trained versus untrained. I'm pretty sure in the Ralston one at least they did, albeit that was for strength outcomes. Um, and it didn't really see any kind of like differences based upon training status. Now it could purely be because, you know, there's just not really enough evidence to get a decent um, estimate on that. Um, but broadly speaking, there was a pretty wide range from about one to four days a week showing fairly equivocal results. And um, so I think, again, you know, when, when you think about it from a practical perspective, um, I actually spoke uh, recently with a journalist about this um, who interviewed me asking about training practices sort of, for, you know, just for the everyday person during um, lockdown in particular and, and how simple resistance training can be. Um, and, you know, I kind of said, you can get largely most of what you're going to get out of resistance training from once a week if you're training, you know, consistently and hard enough. Um, from a practical perspective, um, at least for the general public, maybe less so for advanced guys who are, you know, bought into this and they're committed and they don't miss workouts. Um, but when you tell the general public do training once a week, well, if they miss that once a week, then they've not trained for two weeks. Yeah. Um, so, so recommending twice a week, even if it's no better than once a week, is a good, uh, you know, practical recommendation to provide uh, potentially. Um, but I guess it gives. Um, you know, it gives some comfort to people to know as well that, for example, if there's a period of time where, you know, life gets in the way, you can't train those four times a week that you planned, that even if you're only training, you get one or two sessions in a week, 
you know, that, that's better than nothing. And it's probably not really going to make a big difference. Um, and it's certainly not going to make a big difference over the long term, uh, over um, long term gains. Um, so yeah, so I think the, the, the evidence is pretty um, equivocal at the moment as to, you know, what the optimal is. Um, and I'm, I'm not hugely convinced that we'll really find that there's, there's much of a difference, at least when you look at kind of you know, volume equated um, uh, training. I mean, we're never really going to get these sort of big 275, 290 pound guys in a lab for any long period of time to, <laughs> to test them. Um, so, but the tradition has always been a bro split. And do you think there's any, any sort of uh, value in the notion that if there's, if there's no research actually testing these advanced guys, that what they've been doing is probably a safe bet? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, uh, yeah. I, so here, here's my problem uh, with that, because I actually, I, I do agree with that. I think um, particularly if you're, if you want to, if you're in that population, i.e. you're a competitive bodybuilder and you, you know, you're a big advanced guy, then yeah, why not? It makes sense to potentially go with, um, that is probably the best evidence we have for what works in that population. Um, the issue I always have is, is the confidence with which claims of optimality of that type of training comes from what is essentially very low level evidence. Um, I, I'd have no problem with people going like, look, this is the best we've got. These guys are doing that. They're pretty big. I mean, they could be doing something completely different and probably still be just as big, big, big maybe, who knows, but why not give it a go? go? Um, that I've got no problem with whatsoever. I think my, my biggest gripe with our field is the lack of humility and the just sheer confidence that people have in, in the claims that they make. But hey, you know, that, that, that's what sales and science isn't sexy unless you can make strong, bold claims. Yeah, yeah. That's how you get a big Instagram following. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, I, I'm, uh, again, because I, I, I've diversified some of my interests quite a lot and um, particularly because, and I think, you know, one of the questions you had was about um, uh, intensive effort um, because I've become so fascinated in that as a concept way more broadly than just applying it to resistance training. Obviously, my interest grew out of my interest in its application there. But I've been, um, you know, I've, I've, I've spent the last few years reviewing evidence across so many different domains, philosophy, psychology, economics, uh, neuroscience, um, you know, I've been studies on, you know, effort in uh, listening and cognitive tasks and all, all of these different things to try and find, you know, what is this kind of consistent thing. And one area which is super interesting is um, an area which I didn't even know existed before, which was uh, folk psychology and um, more kind of, of these um ethnographic studies like working with populations and living with them and finding out like you know what do they do what's the kind of um you know pass down expertise that they have um i think they're really interesting and really valuable and they're what kind of generate interesting hypotheses for us to go and test rigorously in the lab which i don't think we've not done a very good job of doing on the uh, you know more kind of um controlled end of the spectrum um but yeah like you know we have an evidence pyramid for a reason um and 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 that is evidence you know it's not necessarily good evidence to yeah. draw co strong causal claims from but it's evidence nonetheless just to probe you on that a bit further because i know we're jumping around a bit but i find that interesting <laughs> what, you, what you said um could you just give us an example of what you mean by that because i mean i'm not sure i completely understood um how this would apply from different areas maybe give, give an example from for the audience just so we can pad it out a little bit 
Yeah, so one, um, so one thing I've been interested in trying to do is, is essentially define what we mean by effort. Like, what is effort? Um, and also, you know, part of the work I've been doing has been on trying to understand and separate the concept of effort as an objective construct, um, you know, the, which in rough terms is the thing, something that has to be done to perform a task. Um, versus the perception of that effort, which may or may not be an accurate reflection of how much effort is actually required to do the task. Um, and so coming from a resistance training background, it's quite easy to do because we can think of it in terms of the relative demands of, you know, lifting or performing a resistance training um, task. So, um, you know, if you give someone, if someone's got 100 kilo one rep max and you give them 80 kilos, that's 80% of their max capacity. So it's objectively 80% effort, assuming that they gave a true 1RM and so on and so forth. Um, if you give them that 80 kilos and they keep performing reps until failure, until the point where you know, their capacity, their strength has now dropped to the point where um, they can no longer produce enough force to lift that, then you know, that, that's also max effort. So essentially, it's defined, bro broadly, I define effort as being the, um, it's essentially a ratio of the demands of any given task. So in our case, a resistance training exercise, the weight used relative to your maximum capacity to be able to do that. Um, and what coming in with that idea, I was you know, really surprised to find that that conceptualization of effort is really applicable across almost any task you can think of. I kept coming across examples where um, that is, you know, just the way in which effort seems to work. Um, I can share with you, it's it's pretty heavy going. It's a big paper. It's quite philosophical and uh, and whatnot. But I've, I've recently, um, when lockdown started, I had a bit of time to finally put pen to paper and really put my thoughts together on that. Um, so I wrote a, a paper earlier in the year um, entitled, What is Effort? And, um, and it, it kind of goes through all of that. It's got um, I, I, it was a fun thing to write. It's got a lot of sort of silly thought experiments and, um, you know, armchair philosophizing and, and um, reference to literature across a you know, ton of different domains. Um, so I, I'll, I'll send you over a link if you want. And you can share that with the uh, listeners. I'd like to read it. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, brilliant. I, I guess um, probably leading into the next question as well. Sorry, because <laughs> I can see the questions. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking ahead. But um, one, one thing that... Um, it's done particularly because in resistance training we think of you know effort in terms of i guess you know training to failure or not to failure or at least in the last decade or so we've really started thinking like that you know people like um you know the early high intensity guys arthur jones and stuff they thought of effort in that way or intensity in that way i'm not a fan of the term intensity because it's a um you have to have intensity of something and so i've, I've spoke a bit about differentiating between the intensity of load which is what people used to use quite a lot versus the intensity of effort um and um but, but one problem we have when we're looking at for example um understanding whether you need to train to failure or not is that most of the research if not all of the research that we have uh, bar one or two studies um dichotomizes it into you train to failure or you don't train to failure um, whereas effort is a continuous variable, you know, it ranges from zero to hundred percent and, you know, isn't you can have an infinite, um, number of different, um, efforts within that, you know, down to whatever decimal place you want, if you really, if you were able to measure things to that degree of accuracy. Um, 
so conceptualizing effort in that way um, means that we have, a, you know, if we can then think of, of ways to, um, to measure and, and objectively define effort within a training protocol, we can potentially now start to do research to understand better the dose response relationship between the degree of effort um, required in a, in, you know, in a task, a resistance training exercise um, and the outcome we get. And we can start to understand because I, I I don't I categorically do not think you need to train to failure to optimize outcomes. Um, I do think practically there's no reason why you, you shouldn't train to failure. Um, it's 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 a catch-all. It's a safe thing. Um, you know, at the moment the evidence suggests that there's no detriment to train to failure. Um, we've we've you know everyone um, holds up. Um, uh, oh my god, my mind's going blank now. Um, I think it was the old drink water study that had the. Um, uh, measured courts, uh, resting cortisol levels um, and showed, you know, a largely unconvincing slight increase in cortisol from regular training to failure. Um, and that's blown up into, oh my God, training to failure too regularly means that you're going to, you know, blow up your CNS and, and everything's going to, you know, it's... We like simple stuff in bodybuilding. Cortisol, yeah, yeah, yeah. bad. <laughs> Testosterone, <laughs> good. <laughs> But I mean, I mean, this is the goes back to the figures. Like that, that's like one study that's that's uh, tried to look at it, not in the best way, and didn't actually really measure overtraining or or anything. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't think there's any. Uh, I, I suspect there is um, greater gains to be had with greater levels of effort. I mean, and I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Um, whether or not you need to train to failure or not, you probably don't. Um, but what that kind of specific level of effort is that you need to require to, whether there is a threshold phenomena, whereas once you've crossed it, you know, it doesn't really matter if you do any more. Um, you know, what that dose response relationship looks like between the effort you put in and the outcomes you get. They're all questions that we need to, you know, we still really need to kind of like dig into. Um, but yeah, from a practical perspective, um, at least with kind of, you know, low to moderate volumes, if you're not doing excessive volumes, yeah. if you're not training it with excessive frequency, um, then you can you can get away with training to failure in pretty much every workout um, and know that you've got a catch-all. Um, and you probably don't even need to train to um, failure per se, although you know we have some evidence from a collaboration with some colleagues in Germany that um, suggests that you know maybe you're better off trained to failure than trying to say, guess how many reps in reserve you have left in the tank because people are actually pretty crap at doing that. Yes. Um, and we've, we've got some interesting data from, um, again, a collaboration with colleagues in Germany, um, but also we conducted a, um, a deception study where um, we had participants come in thinking they were doing a reliability study. Um, and they did two sessions of um, the extensions where they were told to stop one rep short of failure. Um, and because we, we told them we wanted to see how reliable that kind of one rep, rep in reserve is. Um, and then we also had them do sets to failure on two occasions. So because we said we just wanted to see how reliable the number of reps you did to failure was. And what we were really doing was actually comparing the agreement between their one rep shy of failure. Because in theory, they're, if they're one rep shy of failure was um, accurate it would be exactly one rep away from failure um but what we found was people are actually pretty crap at predicting that they're, you know they're more like sort of two or three reps uh, uh, shy of failure when they actually do that which may have an impact on on outcomes um we've we've got one study 
uh, in advanced trainees where we found that there was, you know, maybe a slight attenuation of strength and uh, uh, muscle mass gains um, in that study. But, you know, it, they still improved even when they weren't trained to failure. So it's, yeah, it, but I, I, I personally, my, my, uh, my own training is I train to failure pretty regularly, pretty much every workout, every exercise I'll train to failure. Um, but um, yeah, certainly not a requirement. Yeah. Yeah. When you started talking about volume, I guess my mind went to your conversation about intensity, overall intensity. And it just seems to be a case where if you are training, like most people, low to moderate volumes, because you know, you've got a job, family, all that kind of stuff, you may as well take it to failure. If you are going to be in the gym six times a week for whatever reason, then that's the case where if you're doing tons of volume, you could probably get away with not training to failure because you're just the, the sheer load of volume, the volume load is, is, means you don't necessarily need to take everything to failure so when we talk about sort of intensity of effort is that the is that what you mean by sort of the overall intensity of effort as in how much work you put it in just work just work hard i guess in a sense if that makes sense yeah uh, yeah to yeah you're largely um right that there, there i'm i'm not necessarily sure it's the volume load per se because i think um a, a possible alternate explanation which to me makes a little bit more sense um with the higher volumes is well as you perform higher volumes, you um, induce a greater degree of fatigue um, such that, you know, as you progress through your workout, it becomes relatively harder because the loads that you're using, you know, if you start with this level of capacity, as you fatigue throughout the workout, the loads you're using become actually relatively higher. So you are, you can increase effort by using greater volumes to fatigue yourself so that the loads you're using are require a greater effort to perform um and so i i suspect that um you know to some extent um manipulations of tra training um that induce slightly greater fatigue they may work potentially through um increasing the level of effort uh, uh, you know as you progress through the workout I thought that was a good point. I read that. I read. I read you mentioned that point uh, in one of your articles, and I thought that was a great way of looking at things. Just increasing the level of effort just by doing more volume, um, which was a, it really topsy-turvy way of looking at things. But I find that really <laughs> interesting. Um, that was a good take. Very cool. Um, so yeah, I think with regards to the intensity argument, um, are there any extrapolations for that with regards to advanced lifters, um, or any sort of predictions? So, so it, it's an area I think we definitely need more research in. Um, I mean, you know, like you said, say going back to it, to it actually, um, at least if you look at the, um, uh, there was a survey study done. I'm going to completely forget who did it now. And that's going to really annoy me. I think it was from Daniel Hackett's lab out of Western Sydney. Um, a, a, um, a survey study um, looking at high level bodybuilders and, and um, surveying them on their training practices, their use of ergogenic aids and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, it reflected kind of largely what we, what we think and actually that a lot of them, you know, do train to failure fairly regularly. Um, I, I think most, even if they're not, you know, training kind of, you know, Dorian Yates, Mike Mensah, heavy duty kind of style and, you know, going balls to the wall failure every you know workout um, most bodybuilders are probably including you know some sets close to or to failure in their workouts so, you know um, but in terms of again whether or not causally we know whether that's having a 
positive impact or a negative impact or you know making no difference or not we don't really know because we've not got um a huge amount of research on that um like i say in fact actually i've got a uh, um someone has recently done a meta-analysis on on um, the up-to-date uh, research on training to failure um, I've got a peer review request to have a look at it, <laughs> so I'll, uh, I'll I'll have a look at that at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, so there might be some some uh, new data or new estimates coming out on that soon. Um, I don't know whether they've looked at advanced trainees versus um, you know trained versus untrained or whatever. Um, you know, we we had the one training study that we did in collaboration with colleagues in Germany, um, and the trainees in that study. I mean, we saw slightly greater improvements for. Um, trained to failure versus not to failure. Yeah. Um, they were advanced trainees in the sense that they had um, a number of years of consistent resistance training experience, um, but they were they were by no means bodybuilders. Um, you know, they were um, middle-aged um, uh, trainees who were already clients of the facility that um, we recruited them from, and they were trained in for the study. Um, and so we knew that for the last. You know, uh, I think they had an average of about five years consistent training experience, if I remember rightly. But for the last five years, you know, they've been training consistently at least twice a week, you know, training to failure regularly and, and things like that. Um, so, which is also another caveat to take into account with that data is that the participants that took part in that study had previously been training fairly consistently to failure. Um, and then in one of the groups, they were um, told to not train to failure, um, but to train you know, one rep shy of failure, and we saw slightly greater responses in the group that continue training to failure. Um, so, you know, take take that as as you will. Maybe if you're maybe if you're, uh, may, maybe if you're um, training consistently to failure already, and you back off, then it might slow down get gains. Maybe you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's it's one study. Definitely need more research on that. I think, as you said originally, it's a good catch-all. Um, and most yeah. people, most people who listen to this will probably not fall in the advanced category. I imagine most people who are actively looking for information are probably in the intermediate phase who are thinking, well, they've got plenty of games to be made. They're probably not that secure in what they're doing at the advanced stage. Most guys like yourself as well, pretty much, you know what you're doing at this stage. You'll just go ahead and enjoy the training process. So you kind of know what works for you. But I think for the majority of people actively looking for information, the general guidelines that we have right now are pretty good. Train to failure probably once or twice a week on frequency and you're good to go yeah yeah pretty much it's nice <laughs> and simple nice. um so i guess uh, we've kind of covered this question anyway but i thought we'd just touch on it a little bit with regards to rir because we've not really talked about that too much but i i guess you mentioned earlier on that you're not a proponent of uh, train to failure all the time so what would your thoughts be on the applicability of rir versus hard sets to failure is is there a room for that yeah so I guess I don't, I'm not necessarily um, convinced and I don't think we have um, really much data on it um, to suggest that you need to, for example, vary like, oh, you should do some workouts to you know, free RIR or, or whatever. And potentially, you know, a caveat and an exception uh, being perhaps uh, for powerlifting performance because, you know, you're practicing a particular skill um, you don't necessarily want to be maxing out every time. Um, you know, there is there are more concerns to be taken into account there. Um, but for general kind of, you know, strength and, and hypertrophy, I, I, um, 
the, the reason I say I'm not necessarily a proponent of training to failure all the, t all the time, well, actually, I would say, say I am a proponent of encouraging people to attempt to train to failure all the time. But there are some people who just really struggle with getting to failure, um, which is absolutely fine. fine. Um, so it, really, I, I try and encourage people to, um, you know, to, to train to the degree of effort that they're able to tolerate. Um, you know, some people are, and I think there's a lot of debate within um, the particular, actually, this comes from uh, endurance uh, research. Um, okay. There is debate about, you know, what is it that actually kind of um, causes cessation of, uh, of an exercise task? And right. um, uh, in fact, uh, you know, there's, there's relatively little that's looked at resistance training particularly, although, um, and, and this is someone you should potentially think about getting on the podcast as well, uh, a friend of mine called Israel Halperin um, has done some, he's doing some fantastic research in his lab, um, some really interesting um, applied research. Um, he's very interested in um, you know, perception of effort and, and uh, much like myself, and we speak a lot about that. Um, but he did a really, a really simple study where he um, interviewed participants after it, it, they were part of a, a separate study. But um, in the study, they were supposed to be training to failure. And um, he was recording things like perception of effort and so on and so forth. And he was using scales that we've developed for using in resistance training. Um, and he kept saying, to, you know, he came back to me and said, said it's interesting, you know, people are, um, we're measuring things like velocity loss. Um, and, um, you know, people are, for example, on the bench press, they're getting to the point where you look at kind of the objective data. Um, and there's no chance they get in that bent that that bar back up like they are at failure. Like if he walked off, they would be stuck under the under the bar. Um, but then you know, help them rack it back up and then ask for their perception of effort. And in theory, you know, their actual effort was maximal. So Assuming their perception is accurate, they should give you a maximal rating. But everyone's like, ah, eight out of 10, or you know, like maybe a seven, maybe a nine, sometimes a 10. Um, but then the opposite happens with the squat is, um, you know, you'd look at, he'd look at the velocity data, and based on that, um, assuming it, you know, it's an, uh, an accurate objective indicator of how close to failure they really are, um, you know, they're way off. And yet people stop and they give them, they're giving tens for effort. Um, and, you know, so. And this is also for people who have been explicitly instructed to differentiate the discomfort they're feeling and, and, and things like that. So one thing I think that, um, you know, is an issue with the reps and reserve stuff is, is people are just generally pretty shit at predicting this sort of stuff. People, people I, I find it fascinating now, and I, I write a lot about it in um, the uh, effort paper I've written recently, that this, um, what's called phenomenology, you know, essentially, you know, the, the, conscious experience that we have of you know, what it is like to be us doing the things we do and and and, um, and i'm also really interested fascinated in how uh, particularly during tasks like exercise and things like that um how generally crap our perception is uh, <laughs> it's just a really crude indicator of what's actually happening yep. i mean yeah as exercise gets harder it feels harder it feels more uncomfortable it feels that things feel things that are heavier generally feel heavier and things like that but it's really coarse grained it's really crude it's just a really crappy indicator um but but again having said that it it's also debatable as to how much of an impact that really has you know maybe people 
mispredict how close they are to failure by one or two reps. Yeah, maybe it has a slight impact on their their outcomes. But I think I think a good practical approach is encourage people to try to train for failure, but tell them not to sweat it if they really just can't push themselves to that point. You know, whether it's they can't deal with the discomfort, yeah. they um, you know maybe their perception of effort is just off such that you know to them it feels like max effort, even though re- really they might have a little bit left in the tank. Um, or you know maybe particularly with certain exercises like I mean I mean I used to squat you know squat in a rack and just put the safety bars on and I'd squat to the point where I had to drop it on the safety you know I'd, I'd just get constantineed into the floor and nice, put nice. on the safety bars and then slowly get out of it um, and and I used to you know I used to try and um, it, it used to be um, at the university it was it was just a, fantastic that the um, safety bar I could set the safety bars up and the bench had just the right amount of cushioning and I was just the right depth in terms of my chest <laughs> and the safety bars were literally like like almost half a mil below my chest yeah. so I could actually bench to failure and not worry about like crushing myself without a spot up. Um, but yeah like no one wants to get <laughs> crushed by a barbell and um, so you know it, training to failure is obviously easier on, on machines because you remove that fear factor um, but and again, this is a great, um, I remember Israel saying to me once, um, you know, if you, uh, if, if you pulled him out of bed uh, in the middle of the night, put a gun to his head and said, right, do a set of bench to failure, I'll spot you, but you've got to go to actual failure. He'd be like, okay, yeah, no, I can do that. But if you asked him to squat to failure, like true failure, he'd be like, oh, no way, man. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... Practically, I think um, I think specifying a particular like rep and reserve, I don't really know. I, I'm I'm not convinced that there is particular value in it. Um, yeah. But I'm also not convinced that not hitting failure is like the end of the world. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you on the, the RIR thing. Uh, it becomes so difficult to specify, particularly if you're talking in coaching terms. It's nice to be able to give a, a prescription, a specification to people, but then it's also insanely difficult for that to be adhered to. So if that's if it's possible to be adhered to, it's, it's, it's really quite difficult language to, to then speak into your clients. So I tend not to. It's more of a case of either push to failure or don't. <laughs> and that's just, it's as black and white as that. Work hard or just go all out. And, but most of the time for myself, just because it's me and I can sort of gauge my recovery a bit better, um, I tend to go to failure. I don't, I don't, I don't really take sets, apart from warm-up sets, not to failure. It doesn't make sense to me anymore, especially at this stage. I've been training quite, what, 21 years now. So it's uh, I, just not something I'd, I'd, I'd ever waste time on. It doesn't make sense. As long as I'm feeling okay, you know, feeling all right. Yeah, I think one other thing as well, and do you know what, actually, a lot of these points are still, they're, they're actually things that probably need their own empirical investigation really as well. You know, they're actually questions that could be empirically determined. So, you know, I, I wonder about, um, like you say, you know, if, if you're, you're online coaching with someone and you're providing them with a program and your program says, um, you know, okay, for this, this week, this session, I want you to train at free RIR. Um, you know, I, I'm just introspecting, you know, trying to put myself in the position of a trainee. I, I'd, I could almost feel myself kind of like, and maybe this is because I know that people are shit at predicting this, um, but I could feel myself kind of um, going, stopping and going like, oh, was that really free? Like, did I have one more? Could I have done one more? Should I, did I do too many? Like you almost start to question yourself where as, um, and I can see the, I can see the, that some coaches might want to say like, right. Okay. If you've been training, you know, if if you've been going for a period where you're training at high frequency, high volume, um, and you, uh, let's say it is a deep, you know, it's a deload kind of period, um, that, 
you know, you want to maintain the frequency and volume, but you don't, you know, for whatever reason, you know, again, I'm skeptical as to how necessary it is, but for whatever reason you do that, but you want them to back off going to failure because you've seen some signs and symptoms that make you think maybe they're overtraining a little bit. Um, and you say, right, I want you to go in and essentially not train to failure. Um, and you give them these RIRs. I, like I'd be questioning myself, like, am I, am I hitting the coach's prescription right? And this is where I actually personally think that um, getting them to use, um, you know, just think about the, their perception of effort during it rather than trying to think about an, a number is better. So to just say like, you know, think of effort as being a, a you know, a scale from zero to hundred percent. 100% is you trying as hard as you can and you can't move it and that's failure. Um, and today I want you to just train to approximately 80%. Give them something that's a bit ballpark. and say, yeah. so, so you know they're not going to go in and go to failure if you don't want them to, but they're not going to be like, oh, did I? Like, was that right? Like, because for them, like no one else can know what, whether they hit 80% perception of effort because only they know that. Like only they know what, what their perception feels like. I think it's one of those things where if you're a bit of a nerd, you kind of gravitate towards these um, particular approaches, which are very specified and mm. you want it to work because it makes sense to you. Like you want it to be, you want it to, to mean something. Like I came from powerlifting originally. And when I went to bodybuilding, I really looked for a way, a system which actually worked. Uh, and uh, it, it appeals because it seems like a system and it seems like it's accurate, but it does rely on the, the, the perception. And I think you get to a point where you are now and I think where I am as well is where you realize it'd be nice to have a system, but it doesn't actually work that well. And it's impossible to, uh, to, to see, to accurately predict it. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure it works that well, but it, it might lead back into what we were talking about earlier, which is buy into the program. So, Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, if you're the type of person who, um, who feels comfortable with that, like not sweating it so much and being like, yeah, being a little bit more laid back about it because you, you don't feel worried that being that way is, is going to affect your gains there then that works but if you're the type of person who yeah you know, i know plenty of people who are they're, they're still they're looking for that magic bullet they want the special the special yeah. program that's yeah. going to work and and uh, you know they um, well you know they, they get placebo by the you know the shiny excel spreadsheet and the uh, you know the the, the formulas and the and yeah. the, the acronyms and all of these kinds of things um, <laughs> Even even some conditional formatting as well. I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all my secrets. <laughs> so, uh, if we go on to the next question, thank you for that. That was that was really interesting. Right. Um, so this one, bit of a change of pace here, but looking at uh, rest times on hypertrophy training, I, I'm guessing, I'm guessing with this, it can lead into the broader dis discussion of what is effort. So, how does rest time sort of factor into that? Is that something you have considered manipulating? Is that something that's useful? Um, in all honesty, it's not, it's not really a variable that I've spent a lot of time, um, looking into. Um, so, I, and I guess, you know, you can look at it from a variety of perspectives though. There's, there's uh, rest time between sets. If you're doing multiple sets of an exercise or, you know, or between exercises, um, and whether those exercises are the same muscle group or for, um, you know, different muscle groups and, and so on. Um, I'm in all honesty, it's, it, I've not looked at whatever the latest um, research is around that. Um, fr from memory, um, you know, there was, um, there was, there was, you know, a period of time where the arguments were, you know, longer rest is better for strength development. 
And I can understand that argument, particularly when you're looking at strength development for and measuring strength by things like, you know, um, bench press 1RM or squat 1RM because they're quite skill heavy components. And ideally, skill performance is best done um, when you're not too fatigued. So allowing the recovery between sets essentially allows you to practice that skill of performing that movement, um, you know, without altering the movement due to, to, to fatigue and thus training a potentially slightly different motor schema. Um, and then there was, you know, uh, the argument that, oh, well, if you um, reduce the rest between sets, you're increasing the metabolic stress and that improves hypertrophy and so on and so forth. And then there was a period where um, some studies found that, you know, uh, longer set, uh, longer rest intervals actually seem better for hypertrophy. And so people chalked it up to, well, it means you can do a greater volume load uh, you know that's because you're doing the sets and, and you know and there's all these kind of like and and they're all arguments that just sort of mechanistically are you know lacking really in anything that seems plausible to me yeah and you know i kind of got i kind of got bored of that argument a little bit because uh, it was around the period you know i didn't pay too much attention i was thinking about you know I, i'm not really convinced how big an, an impact this really has um in terms of meaningfulness of these these differences um but for again coming back to the practical perspective um you know per personally in my training i i rest as long as i feel like i need to between uh exercise well i tend to do single sets of most things um i do occasionally throw in some advanced techniques like drop sets and stuff um but i'll i'll, I'll rest so obviously i don't rest in between the drop sets um but between exercises i'll you know i rest as long as i feel like i need to as soon as i feel ready to do the next exercise i just jump straight into it that's that's my general prescription as well i i, I tend to avoid adding in too many intensity techniques just simply because most people have going back to the intensity argument most people have enough time actually trained to failure enough of a, mm. a hard time actually trained to failure so if you're adding a bunch of other stuff on top of it like okay on your piece of paper you've got a set followed by a double drop set you're already thinking about the double drop sets and i think it's already impacting the intensity you can give to the main set so yeah i'm, I'm like you i do straight sets just getting a straight set right is probably more valuable than throwing in a bunch of other stuff uh, which complicate things i think it dilutes the process so uh, yeah. yeah yeah absolutely awesome um so okay this is i guess probably quite a big question uh, this came up in a couple of different formats uh and so i, I summarized it into one question uh but volume optimal practical volume let's take your typical guy who might be listening to this uh podcast he's any of team 20 to 40 looking for some mad gains uh and <laughs> what how much work does he need to do per body part per week yeah so um so obviously we've got the whole debacle of um uh, of now ignoring the uh barbello studies that i, I was involved in and uh, which had, had um what, what i find interesting and um the, the the conversation about volume has, has shifted slightly it always used to be about um, the number of sets say per exercise or per muscle group uh, within a workout whereas um it seems to have shifted more towards discussing the number of sets per week um and and what i find interesting is um if you look at the um the the latest meta-analysis data from uh you know brad schoenfeld's group um it, the gains seem to be optimal at about, I think it was about 10 sets a week, week if I remember rightly. Mm -hmm. um, now, you could, uh, you can, I mean, we, we made a point in a letter to the editor about that meta-analysis that actually um, a, a single set per exercise program, you know, a typical kind of old school high intensity training um, program could 
hit 10 sets a week, um, you know, per, per muscle group. Um, fairly easy because most programs, you know, include a selection of exercises per muscle group. You might be training, you know, say two or three time, times a week. So actually these, it's really funny because these, um, uh, these uh, pieces of evidence are kind of put forward to support a kind of quote unquote high volume approach. And then you get the warring camps between hit and high volume and so on and so forth. When, um, and you know, uh, I know Brett, no Brad, uh, we, 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 well, we work together obviously on the, um, investigation of the Barbaro stuff. Um, we're working together on, um, the, uh, COVID lockdown study I mentioned, you know, Brad's a great guy and, uh, both myself, James Fisher and Brad, we agree on way more than we disagree agree on. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I, my, my personal view is that, um, you know, that there's, there's not necessarily, a requirement to be doing say multiple sets within a workout um, of the same exercise um, but you know including a, a range of exercises that might target the same muscle group more than once is fine and doing a single set of uh, those exercises um, and then you know in those meta-analyses though there's still substantial gains to be seen even from as little as one set per week to five sets per week 10 sets per week might be a little bit better. Um, again, though, there's still the question of like whether that improvement is really meaningful. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, slight percentage uh, better increases in muscle size measured using techniques where, you know, really we're not answering the question of whether people are seeing you know mad gains um you know we don't know whether they whether the guy training with 10 sets a week versus five sets a week actually looks bigger at the end of the program or has has increased his size uh visibly more because we, we just don't know that so um you know I, I think uh starting in that kind of conservative ma manner you can train from as little as kind of one to ten sets a week week per uh body part um Really, I think again, and I'm, I'm, I've so become really lax about a lot, or really laid back about a lot of this in terms of recommendations. I think um, finding what works for you um, and what you enjoy and what you can stick with is uh, the best approach. And I think excessive volumes are, unless you're super committed, are going to potentially put you off. Yeah. Maybe you get slightly greater gains, um, but it's down to you as an individual to determine whether it's worth that. Um, but you know, relatively low to moderate volume um, done consistently over time is, you know, is, is um, really all, all you need to do. Um, and I think possibly with, with the, sorry to interrupt, but possibly with the proviso that as long as the low volumes are there, the intensity has got to be, you actually got to get a failure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and in, in most of these studies that are included in these meta-analyses, you know, they, they are typically controlled by having the sets performed to failure. Um, so, you know, again, actually, this isn't, there is the caveat potentially that these volume recommendations are volume recommendations for how many sets to failure. Um, maybe you get, different results if you're doing uh i mean we we have got a study which was um it wasn't specifically looking at training to failure versus not failure um but more looking broadly at kind of quote unquote high intensity versus you know more traditional kind of free sets not to failure program um again with some of our collaborators um led by jürgen giesing in uh, in germany um we had a group uh, that performed um a single set to failure followed by two drop sets um versus a group that performed uh three sets not to failure so uh, you know stopping what they felt was one rep in reserve and again we saw slightly greater improvements in the um group using the hit protocol 
Um, and you know that might be because the um, the not to failure group were maybe training too far away from failure. You know, even though they were doing greater volume, um, but you know, again, the the results are not they're not huge differences, um, and we still saw improvements in both both groups. Uh, so it, I think there's there's just a lot of flexibility in what can be done. Um, and, and actually, the, the, the point I was, I was going to make is um, that I, I am also, we've, one thing we've got to remember is our studies are done typically over short periods of time. You know, at, at most, you see maybe a 24-week intervention study in resistance mm -hmm. training. Um, what we're severely lacking is um, data on the long-term adaptations to continued resistance training, um, and certainly data on the comparative effects of different approaches over the long term. Um, so I, I always think back to um, a friend of mine called Skylar Tanner used to write a really nice blog and he, he wrote a blog post years back. Um, I think it was called like the six year itch or something. And he spent a bit of time looking over kind of um, natural bodybuilders records and kind of comparing um, the rate of growth over careers for um, you know uh, people that were bodybuilder natural bodybuilder that was using a you know a typical kind of hit style program versus the more higher volume one and the rate of growth in terms of um, lean mass gains you know per year over the course of their careers were pretty much the same um, it, I I have this um, I have this idea that um, what we sometimes see in studies is potentially slightly different rates of improvement in outcomes. So you might have one intervention that uh, I'm never sure how this appears. Is this, does this go on YouTube? Uh, it might do at the moment. Most okay. just podcast, but <laughs> no, worries. I, I'm, I'm never sure. So when, so when I'm kind of like, uh, when I'm talking on a podcast uh, and I'm sort of like using my fingers to draw a graph in the air, <laughs> I never know whether this is actually useful or not. Um, but uh, you know, let's say for example, over 12 weeks, um, you know, one group has uh, produced greater gains than the other. Well, you know the, the the slope of their gains is is steeper in that ca that case. You know they they've um, they, they've gained at a faster rate given that period of time. But I wonder whether if you extended that out over you know a lifetime and compared those two groups, so what would really happen is they both groups would just hit a ceiling, and one would just take maybe slightly longer to get to you know a person's uh, potential or limit. Um, and uh, I mean, we've actually got some, I'm, I'm doing some work at the moment with a Dutch company called Fit20, who um, they are, they're a franchise company and they run, I think they've got 200 facilities worldwide. Um, but it's a really nice opportunity to work with them because they're very data driven. They use a, um, a very standardized protocol of the franchises that they run are, you know, like carbon copies of one another. Um, and they use, they use a typical kind of hit style protocol twice a week it's all single sets to failure um but they've got you know 10 years work they record everything every workout is recorded there and then um and it's all uploaded immediately onto a big cloud database so um i'm going to be working with them to look at this database and they've got you know nearly twenty thousand uh clients worth of data for you know 10 odd years and um, where we can look at their gains over time and see you know well how long does it take for people to plateau? Do people plateau? Um, you know, what, what, uh, what's happening? And I've had some preliminary looks at a sample of the data um, and across a number of exercises, gains happen for about a year and then pretty much 
don't after that. Um, and some people would argue, well, it's because they're doing the same protocol. You need to switch it up. Um, but I think um, what would be really interesting is if more, um, particularly like these these big facilities and, and even trainers and stuff, stuff you know, um, collecting data um, and, you know, that kind of data and making it open would really help answer some questions that would potentially help inform some of the other, the interpretations we're making of other studies. Because, you know, let's say, for example, we looked at, um, you know, say an, another um, uh, business that ran a you know, similar thing. They collected all the data and we had all that available for a long period of time, but they used a completely different protocol. Um, and we still saw that people plateaued, plateaued after a year. Well, that might just mean that, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. If you train for about a year, you're going to max out what you're going to get. And, but, you know, the, these are all super interesting things that, that to me, they, they make me feel a bit more kind of like um, uh, less neurotic about my training at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell, tell you what a field does that really well. It's a diet field. So um, yeah. you've got just tons and tons of data now, which looks at what people who are successful in losing weight and keeping it off actually do. And there was mm. a study released earlier this year, it's January. There's been a few of them, but just looking at sort of long-term, what do people do to actually lose weight and keep it off? And I love those kind of studies. They're great. Um, and it seems to be fairly general recommendation, good, good, good stuff like high protein, uh, vegetable intake. Um, excessive exercise isn't normally a part of weight maintenance, but it tends to be a part of losing weight initially. So there's a bit of a distinction there. And just mm. general good habits that we all know are, are pretty solid. So um, I find I, I like that I mean, when you were talking about the large, gathering large amounts of data, that's where, that's where my mind went to. I thought if we did that in a weight training field as well as they do that in a diet field, yeah, we would probably see some really, really good general broad guidelines start to surface. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we still need to be, there's still caveats that we have around, um, you know, drawing cause, strong causal claims from that kind of data um, because, you know, it's not, um, and this is where we're actually, our field is just starting to, um, to recognize that, um, you know, there, there are ways to look at observational data and uh, um, potentially um, use statistical approaches and, and uh, approaches from, um, you know, uh, epidemiology, um, who, who, you know, they're, they're experts in causal inference from observational data. And as much as nutritional epidemiology gets a really bad rap, more because measurement issues are, are bad and things like, like that and you know but there are approaches to you know modeling causal effects from observational data um still just need to be you know fairly humble about what we can recommend yeah. uh from them but you know like yeah it, it, it's i mean it's a bigger it, there's probably more value in doing that than doing you know like 10 person randomized control trials <laughs> that don't really tell us a lot I think it's important to say, and just so people who are listening know, that the frustration sometimes with, with researchers is it's, there's no actual guideline, like just concrete guidelines. But then it's, it's, they're kind of odd because we have a broad general guide because you've, you've been given some good stuff, just work hard in the gym low to moderate volumes i think people really want actual specifics and headlines don't they and mm. unfortunately that's just not there we're just far it's far too broad and I, i'm not sure there ever will be really no, I think you can give specificity about where to start. Like, you know, um, and, and um, I think about this because I, I was involved in, um, I was on the expert panel that was involved in producing the most recent physical activity guidelines for the UK. Um, and, and being the resistance training guy on the, uh, on the expert group, you know, it fell to me to review that evidence. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, again, 
basically the same sort of things we said here, here, you know, from a public health perspective, twice a week, you know, single set to fairly high effort. Um, and, you know, we, uh, th there's no real need to, particularly for the general public, to even worry about, you know, uh, the modality of training. You know, a set a set of push-ups, a set of some sort of pulling exercise like a bodyweight row. Um, you know, a set, uh, a set of bodyweight squats or a wall sit or something like that, and maybe a plank. That's four exercises. You pretty much hit every muscle group that's of importance. Do a set of them to failure. You know, once or twice a week, and you know, you, you've probably got the vast majority of what you're going to get out of uh, out of training in terms of outcomes. Yeah, I work with some footballers and that's generally the type of thing that I do with them usually twice mm. a week. That's it. It's all they need. The rest of the time, just devoted to do sports specific stuff. So yeah, totally agree. Um, yeah. If we go on to a question about, I quite like this question, mainly because it's specific protocols and it might, <laughs> might interest people. Um, hit DC versus RIRRP style training is free, but I'm not sure there is an answer to that question basically in terms of what we've said. It is more just a case of just work hard and something will find what works for you, right? yeah yeah i think so i was wondering what what's the dc oh uh, dog crap training oh uh, right yeah yeah yeah. Don, Don, Don <laughs> yeah 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 um but i mean I, to be fair i think we've mostly covered that uh in unless you wanted to add anything else to it no i think yeah it's like like i said we, we we've probably covered most of the aspects of that training of, of that question that we would cover of where we dealing with it standalone yeah. um e either approach is probably it's negligible as to what you know the differences between them really i, I at least in terms of outcomes. sorry say that again at least in terms of uh, outcomes i suspect so it's more about you know i mean i, I mean I, I i'm a masochist when it comes to tra training like I, I i i love training to failure i love it i love hard training i i i, I some people don't like that so don't train that way yeah I, uh, I mostly just manage risk, I think, in terms of, you know, yeah. with clients. It's just like what's safest. And as long as we can keep them injury, because the biggest thing that seems to derail people is just injuries long term. Um, yeah. And that's what, that's what it was for me anyway, you know, back when I was powerlifting. So, yeah, I think just managing risk is the big thing. Apart from that, train as you feel like, really. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think we've covered intensity techniques. Um, how about, and I'm aware I'm, I've kept you for quite a while now, so I'm going to just skip over onto the... Um, Last couple of questions. Firstly, any practical tip for building the side delts? Anything you've come across? <laughs> <laughs> Very specific question. I'm not really sure. I'm not sure how to interpret that. Practical tips for side delts? Um, lat raises? Yeah, he said he couldn't feel. <laughs> he, yeah, he, he said he couldn't feel his uh, his delts very much. So I think I'll tell him just to do more side delts. Yeah. More, more, my, more. My, my shoulders are, are an absolute mess anyway. So like my my. my left out looks really weird because i've got a kind of partial ac tear and oh. yeah my, my 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 shoulders are uh, uh i'm not the one to be taking advice from my shoulders. <laughs> i saw i saw your most muscular on uh, on your instagram you look pretty 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 lean and shredded there i like it it's good um, i had a fairly yeah. good tan then as well which has faded already <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, last question then how bad does a quad muscle biopsy hurt I saw you put that. And you know what? I have to admit, I've never actually had a, a biopsy myself. Um, yeah. But the, uh, well, uh, not, not because I've avoided it, but I've just never had the opportunity to participate in a study that's required one. Um, but the, f from speaking to people, it's not too bad. I mean, it's not, um, at, le at least as people report for to me, um, if, if it's a well-trained um, technician taking them, then not too, not too bad. 
Okay, okay. I think Dr. Scott Stevenson, he's had, he's had a few done on his legs. Um, see, I, that's dedication to your craft there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, well, we, we should be, um, because our lab is not, um, most universities that do that kind of research are attached to medical schools. Um, and at least in, um, I'm pretty sure in Canada, the biopsies actually have to be done by, a, um, by an MD. Um, if I remember rightly, um, but we are—we've recently, in the last couple of years, um, had new biomedical science labs opened up at our university, um, and we're in the process of. Um, there, there's all sorts of regulatory stuff that you have to go through for human tissue sampling and storage and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so hopefully, over the next, um, you know, maybe a couple of years, we might actually be in a position to be able to start doing um, in you know i i'm i'm a real big fan of translate you know the research across the translational pathway like i really i love geeking out on the mechanistic stuff i'm i uh, you know i've always been super interested in um understanding the you know molecular signaling pathways that are involved in um you know stimulating particular responses and how they translate into you know functional morphological outcomes and things like that um, but then at the same time i'm then interested in you know well how does that translate into testing the efficacy of interventions and and then also the, the stuff that gets overlooked in our field which is understanding how do you actually implement this stuff and what research needs to be done to understand the best ways to implement things and and you know um what, what you know there's a differentiation um happens in drug research a lot and uh, typically from sort of like phase three to phase four drug trials at, at phase three you figured out the drug works like it does it produce if people take it it produces the effect you want it to but that's a different question to if you prescribe it to someone whether it works because they might not take it they might not take it as often you know they might not get that there's all these kind of like that's when you start introducing the real world stuff uh, into it and for stuff like exercise which is a complicated behavioral thing um telling people to exercise is not the same as knowing what exercises work best if people do it do it um and and we we completely overlook that that part of the uh, the spectrum like a, a lot of the time yeah <laughs> i love it um yeah fantastic uh james thank you very much for for uh for coming on today i i really enjoyed myself i thought it was great and i think people get a lot of value from it so uh yeah thanks very much and uh yeah best of luck with the, everything in the future what do you have lined up um next as in what, what currently are you working on any sort of big projects so as always i i i i'm i'm one of these people who has a real problem saying no to things that sound interesting um so no, I, i'm involved in Way, way more than I should be. <laughs> yeah. um, so some of the things that stand out at the moment, um, I mean, we've got um, uh, um, Milo, who I mentioned, who's just, just going to be starting with us soon. He's, um, his PhD is, um, he's interested in looking at range of motion effects um, during resistance training. And so he'll be exploring that over the next couple of years in a lot more detail. Um, Pac is just finishing up with his work in powerlifters. Um, he's done some really interesting stuff. So he originally did a pilot study. Look, he's interested in looking at the minimal effective dose for improving powerlifting performance. Mm. And so he um, he did a really nice uh, pilot trial actually with a powerlifting team in Greece. Like um, amazing that he could actually persuade them to take part in this. Um, but they the coach split their team in half and trained them uh, using two different interventions in the preparation for a competition. Wow. Um, that, that's and a, what, that... one. That's I know a, that's, that's the most relaxed coach I've ever met. <laughs> I know it was crazy. Um, 
and uh, uh, so we use that as a pilot trial. But he's been doing some really interesting stuff as well. Like he's yeah. done um, coming back to this idea of meaningfulness. He's yeah. um, he's done a interview and survey study with some of the top. Like he's interviewed Steffi Cohen and, and a ton of other people um, to and surveyed coaches and athletes to ask them what they think a the smallest worthwhile change in say you know strength is is for them, so that he can look at his minimal effective dose stuff and say like well does this kind of, you know, minimal approach like daily max training and, and things like that, um, does it produce a big enough strength gain that, you know, athletes and coaches actually care about it? Because if it doesn't, then by definition, it's not worth them doing um, because, you know, they've already determined that. So there's, there's stuff like that I, that's interesting. Of course, I've got the, all the effort stuff is is on is um, on the plate at the moment. I know I've got some funding to recruit a PhD student to start looking at, um some uh psychophysics work trying to better understand how people's perceptions of effort actually map onto actual effort during a range of different tasks exercise and cognitive tasks and so on and so forth um and yeah i mean that's just a a, a couple of examples but there's pro probably 20 other projects that <laughs> I'm, I'm not thinking of off the top of my head right now <laughs> well that sounds great and i'd love to read that paper so uh, i'd be looking forward to uh, to to getting that through yeah, I'll send it over. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try and anything I, I, I recall having mentioned in the, in the podcast, I'll try and send over some links if you want to include, include them. Brilliant. Right, James. Uh, thanks very much cool. and uh, take care.